A word from today's sponsor. Embodia is an all-in-one platform for rehab professionals and our patients. I love using Embodia because it includes a complete practice management for charting, scheduling, billing, and online booking. Plus, Embodia has digital exercise prescription, program monitoring, secure two-way messaging, waitlist management, in-depth reporting, and so much more. As an added bonus, there's a library of continuing education courses and regular live webinars so that you can continue to learn while you build your practice. Visit EmbodiaApp.com and use the code MOMSTRENGTH to get $20 off your first month Month's tier three membership. I was just so other all the time, experienced so much racial trauma, and just took such a long time figuring out who I was as a brown person and just really like ran away from pieces of my identity for so long. And I was like, well, if brown is bad and everyone's gonna say like nasty, horrible shit and just make all these comments from the like very racist to all the microaggressions, you know, and you know how it is like if we had a dime for every time. So oh, yeah. like, where are you from? No, yeah. where are you from? I'm like, I'm from the freaking moon. <laughs> anyway, we'd be rich yeah. and we'd be in Hawaii, not to say we don't love our jobs. But anyway, it took me a long time to figure out um, who I wanted to be as a brown woman and what that identity was. And a big piece of that was when I became a parent. <laughs> Welcome to Mom Strength, a podcast and movement to empower, educate, and showcase mom strength inside and out. I'm your host, Surabi Veach, physiotherapist and fitness coach, also known as the Passionate Physio. Join me for discussions on movement, mindset, and motherhood, where we raise the bar and challenge the status quo. Get ready for expert interviews and real, honest conversations where we explore physical, mental, and emotional health. Let's celebrate the beautiful diversity and common experiences in all of our journeys. Let's do this. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mom Strength. This is your host, Sura B. Veach, and I'm really excited to have on Divya Kumar today. She is a perinatal mental health therapist. So let me do her official bio and then we're going to welcome her on. So Divya Kumar is a South Asian American psychotherapist with a public health background who specializes in perinatal mental health trauma and the life transitions related to pregnancy, childbirth, and parenting. She's especially passionate about holding space for folks of color and folks who identify as first and second generation immigrants as they navigate the transition to parenthood and explore how race, racial identity and culture intersect with parenting. Hi, Divya. I'm so excited to have you on here today. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, as I just connect with you, read more about you, I'm just like, this is who I, someone like me needs as an immigrant myself, raising biracial kids, trying to figure it all out, culture, race, parenting, um, often without the best uh, I don't want to say the best, but often without the examples that maybe we needed because our parents were raised in a different time, different generation, different culture. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your work in, in mental health? Sure. Yes. And that story resonates with me, right? That's, that's kind of my story and how I sort of tumbled into this work. So yeah, I grew up in Connecticut. My parents are immigrants from India. Uh, my dad came in 1965. My mom came in 1971. Um, and, uh, you know, child of Indian immigrants in white suburban Connecticut, super preppy, super like white suburban jock, like this eighties. Right. So like collars and like Mercedes and everything. 
Um, and you know, it was just, I was just so other all the time, experienced so much racial trauma and just took such a long time figuring out who I was as a brown person and just really like ran away from pieces of my identity for so long. And I was like, well, if brown is bad and everyone's gonna say like nasty, horrible shit and just make all these comments from the like very racist to all the microaggressions, you know, and you know how it is like if we had a dime for every time. So oh, yeah. like, where are you from? Yeah. No, where are you from? I'm like, I'm on, from the freaking moon. <laughs> anyway, we'd be rich yeah. and we'd be in Hawaii, not to say we don't love our jobs, but anyway, um, I, um, it took me a long time to figure out um, who I wanted to be as a brown woman and what that identity was. And a big piece of that was when I became a parent. My husband is white. We've been together since we were 20 years old. And we had these two children, they're teenagers. And when I became a parent, I was like, wait a minute, there's this part of my identity that I've just really run away from um, because of fear and because of trauma and because of yeah. experiencing racial trauma. And I was like, how do I want to raise these multiracial children and give them a sense of an Indian identity? And then of course, the next question is, well, what is my Indian identity? What does that yes. even mean? What yeah. does it mean to be Desi? And I'm not like, I'm, I don't know, I hate to say typical Desi, but I, I often like fought against a lot of the stereotypes. I was like, I hate math. My mother is a doctor. No, I don't want to be a doctor. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah. married a white man was very sort of untraditional and like the aunties love me, but they're like, oh yes, she is she is her own person, you know, they'll say things like that, which I'm like, yes, but also that it is also a way of saying like, oh, she's kind of doing her own thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in this unprecedented way, like I remember being in college and seeing the science for like, you know, they see like a South Asian student, whatever. And I was like, I don't want that. I don't want to be around these people. And then suddenly mm. when I became a parent, I would see these brown, like basically looking moms at the playground. And I would be like, hi, hi. <laughs> <laughs> And I sort of wanted, I was like, oh, do you guys do anything for Diwali? Like, what, do you want to do something? Do you want to light some theas? And I was like, oh, I should learn how to make this halva that my mom used to make. How did she do that? And so yes. it's just part of this reckoning and I, and it, where it ties with um, the professional pieces, like I have two children, I'm a survivor, two-time survivor of postpartum depression, anxiety, and OCD. So I wrestled really mightily with a perinatal mental health stuff and I realized that in the mess, when I was like really in the shit with it, I felt so much shame. And a lot of that shame came from this, like, gosh, my parents struggled so much that I could have everything. Mm, and yeah. I have everything. I have this wonderful husband who loves me so much. These two beautiful, healthy, wonderful children. I have a house. We're not struggling in that way, but I am struggling. And I was like, oh, well, fuck, like something is really wrong with me. And I have done my parents wrong. Like this is, I'm really not good enough. They sacrifice, you know, definitely. Like I definitely heard that narrative of like, we came here with nothing so you could have everything. So you should be grateful. Yes. And, and so part of this journey has been figuring out what role did culture and race play into my experience with perinatal mental health. And through a whole bunch of twists and turns, I did public health and I wanted up, wound up running new parent support groups and doing all this postpartum support work. Um, and I just noticed that the perinatal field was really white and I would yes. go to conferences and I'd be like, oh, there's like a handful of black and brown faces. We're like, Hey, what's up sis? Like, who yeah. want to be friends? Yeah. Um, and so one of the reasons why I ended up going to school is so that I could be a brown therapist. So I could sit with the children of immigrants and be like, 
I yeah, get so, it. <laughs> yeah. And like, what did we learn about parenting? Like who yeah. taught us about what it means to be a mother or a good mother? What does it mean to show love? What does it mean to struggle? Like, what is this normalization and glorification of struggle and sacrifice, man? Yeah. Uh, and so, and yeah, that, that's, that's what I do. And, you know, while you're speaking, even though I was born in India and like I moved to Canada when I was 10, but I, I sit in this in between, like, am I Canadian? Am I Indian? You know, am I, what, what is my identity? And I totally resonate with the fact that it wasn't until I became a mom that I truly was like, wait a second, I'm, I'm here wanting to pass on my culture to my kids, but I need to be more in like, I need to understand my culture first. I need to understand who I am first. And so that was when I started really focusing on celebrating my culture, reconnecting with it again, and in a way that felt good to me. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I deeply, everything you're saying, I'm like, wow, yes. And I remember uh, being referred to therapy because I had postpartum anxiety after my first. And, you know, I was just like, so much of the anxiety isn't just the typical mom stuff. It's also the race. It's also the culture. It's also the interracial marriage. There's so many aspects that I feel like are often missed when you're seeing a white therapist who maybe is not trained and not aware that these, these things even matter, right? So I'm so grateful that there uh, are people like you in this in this field. So tell me a little bit about how do race and culture impact parenting? Oh my gosh, so many ways, right? Like there are just, I'm like, okay, buckle up. How much time do we have? <laughs> um, I think, you know, one of the things that I think about so much is like, how do we show love? Like, what is the demonstration of love? And I'm sure we've all seen that meme that like they see mom is not going to say, I love you. She's going to say, did you eat? Exactly. I was like, I, I'm just thinking love is food, right? Like my, for my mom, love means right. making food for us, asking if I've eaten. Um, right. Yeah. Right. I do for you. I am like, it's, it is the normalization. The service. Yeah. It's the glorification of not just service, it's sacrifice. Yes. And with this element of suffering, right? Like I don't exist, I do for. Our culture is really relational, right? Like we are, we define ourselves in relation to our families. Like I'm so-and-so's daughter. I am a mother. I am a wife. I am a, you know, I'm, I don't have siblings, but you know, it's just this, like we are in relation to each other. And so, so much of parenting is figuring out like, how do I what do I want to do for my children? How do I want to love them? And how also do I want to preserve myself? Mm. And we don't, we don't know anything about that. Right. And I am always so ready to like rush out of the house, like get somebody, pick somebody up, make somebody special food, even when I'm tired. And now the kids are older and they call me on it all the time. And they're like, do you want this we got Chinese takeout the other day and my older one loves pork and chive dumplings. And he's like, do you want this dumpling? And I was like, no, 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 you have it. And he's like, do you want the dumpling or not? And I'm like, no, you, and I, I did this, no, you have it, which is like, I look like an auntie, right? I'm yeah. Like, no, yeah. No, you have it. Yeah. It's like, I can just picture my mom saying that. And the funny thing is my brother and I would call my mom out on it too. I remember one year we bought her um, new shoes for mother's day or her birthday or something. They were half size too small. She didn't tell us. She oh. forced her feet 
we could have easily just exchanged it. Right. Like no problem. But she was like, oh my gosh, my kids bought me a gift. And we were like adults at this time. Right. So it wasn't like we were babies. Right. And she wouldn't tell us. And I found out months later that she's been forcing her sore feet into these shoes because we bought her these shoes. And so it's this type of like sacrifice, you know, not asking for what you want, being okay, not being, not ever being first that, you know, many of us have absorbed from our moms, right. And And the women in our family. Oh, totally. And like this whole thing of like, we eat last, you know, yes. like I'm feeding everybody. It's just like this, that, I mean, there's big things, which I'll say in a second, but like some of it is just like really basic everyday shit. Like who gets the big piece of chicken? Like yes. I will never take it. I will give it to my kids and my husband. Yeah. And I, it's been a lot of like unlearning and relearning. Cause they're like, wait a minute, do you really want it or not? And they've called me on it now. They're like, we don't know whether you mean it or you don't mean it. And like, that right. doesn't, they almost said like, it doesn't feel good. And I was like, yes. Oh, and I was like, look, this, and I, I'm a huge fan of like the micro narrating, like why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'm like, this is how I was raised and it's part of my culture. And I can see how it's not super helpful. So I'm going to try to do better. And so mm. I would like this dumpling. Would you like it? You know, we can have a negotiation about it. Whereas my husband, who's wonderful. Of course, he's like, I'll, I'll eat the dumpling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they don't think twice about it because it's never, first of all, they're men. And then they're also like white men. So it's it's not in the culture to put others first, right? Sounds bad, but it's kind of true. But so it's what it's they like, learned. It's what right? they learn. I remember, I remember the same, same types of conversations. It's like, we'd have leftovers and he'd be like, oh, do you still want some? And I'm like, yeah, I want to keep it for my lunch tomorrow, right? Like in my head. But I would be like, no, no, you eat it. And then there would be no lunch the next day. And I'd be like going to work and not have like, it's just, it's the simple stuff. So I'm glad you're talking about that because so many people think it's the big things only, but it's all these little behaviors that we learn. And then we start to embody ourselves when we become parents. Well, right. And like the other example, like the day-to-day things like last year, two children, you know, two different places needed to be picked up at the same time. Some pickup fell through one child here, one child there at need to be picked up at the same time. And I was like, oh my God. And I'm like frantically being like, can you get my kid? Da, 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 da. My husband's like, okay, well, someone will just wait. <laughs> They'll just wait for 10 minutes. I'm like, she can't wait. She will have it swim practice and she has wet hair and it's cold, like wet hair, Indian mom. Like I'm every yeah, yeah, yeah. Now. yeah. But he was like, just don't turn yourself into a pretzel. Like the child can take a hit here. They're not six. Like she was like 12 at the time. It's 13. Yeah. It's fine. And I was yeah. like, oh, I'll turn myself into a pretzel. So the child isn't waiting in the cold. Yes. And it's like, and, and I think that like, we just don't, we don't know how to protect ourselves in that way. And you know how it is like shit is exhausting. We, mm-hmm. and we don't do ourselves favors. We didn't learn how yeah. to protect Care for ourselves. ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're not we're probably not eating all the things that we should. We're like, no, 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 no you have, Oh, I guess I will. I'll, I'll do everything without saying like, no, I can't get you either. Wait until I can get an Uber, take the bus. Yeah. Here are the options. Yeah. And I think that it actually um, doesn't serve our kids in the future because when we do everything for them, they don't learn those skills themselves. And then many of us, we become 18, 19, we go off to college and then we're like suddenly left to figure it all out because nobody, like people have just been doing it for us the entire time. So it doesn't teach us those skills either. So it's like, obviously it's beneficial for us if we, you know, start seeing what we need, but it's also helpful for our kids. So you know, it's both. And that example with the food, 
so many of the, um, the clients that work with, they don't eat fruit and I was not eating fruit. I save all the good fruit for my kids, yeah. all the berries, all the strawberries. I'm like, ah, I'll eat an apple banana. You eat the berries. Right. And cause they love it. Right. And they, they'll eat the whole thing, but it's like, no, no, I deserve fruit. If anyone needs antioxidants, it's the people who are aging. Right. Right. <laughs> But it's all, but the point that, that point is so important of like, how do we show, and this is the thing, like, how do we show the children that we are humans and not Mm, robots and we don't exist to serve them. Um, And we do in some ways, but it's not like, how do we find this balance? And that I think is like the really tricky thing that I think many people are trying to figure out. And like, along the same lines, we do tend to like fix it, fix it. Cause that's often what was modeled for us. Absolutely. Ain't nobody in a Daisy family talking about feelings. Like, no, no. what in the ever loving fuck is that? Like, no. <laughs> right. And so like, I still do this when my kid's like, ah, you know, I need to figure this thing out. Even yesterday, he texted me about some scheduling conflict and mom, and he clearly is like distressed. And so I, and the most important part of parenting, right. It's co-regulation is that we can't, we can't, can't match their energy when they're stressed. Yeah. And like, do as I say, not as I do. I'm like, girls learning big time here. I'm like, I'm learning too. Cause it is, it is a practice every day, literally every day. And how every do we day. be like, okay, I see this is and to like name the feeling like, oh man, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is so frustrating. I'm sorry. This is so annoying. Like you have to yeah. deal with this and not jumped in this. Like, okay, do this, do that. I will solve your, yeah. And, you know, I had to be like, okay, I'm like, I was like, grr, you know, emojis, like, sorry, blah, like WTF, annoying. And it, what, how can I help? Um, mm-hmm. So much of that, that was, that's another big piece of culture, right? That like, um, you know, just because our parents often were a product of their own intergenerational trauma. Yes. So many people in the diaspora in, in different generations, war, forced migration, partition, Yes. Any religious persecution, all kinds of stuff. And none of, nobody ever, nobody's grandparents ever talked about that. And everyone's just like, just buried it away. Yeah. And like, you see your parents get distressed and nobody names what's going on. Nobody talks about it. Kids often have to like, be like, whoa, what's happening? Nobody's talking about it. And they absorb all of that. Cause nobody's saying like, I got upset because X, Yeah. this is what happened for me. When I get upset, it's not your responsibility. I'm going to figure out how to manage my stuff. And no matter what, I love you. I'm always here for you. That never yes. happened. That never happened for us. Never. So we have to learn how to do that for our kids. Yeah. No models, right? It's no models. Yeah. And, and I will say that like, that's something that we definitely see in our culture, but I feel like that's cross-cultural in our parents' generation because, because so for so long I had thought, um, being brown was a problem. Having brown parents was the problem. But now that I'm married <laughs> to somebody who isn't brown, I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold up. There's a lot of problems in white families in all families. And yes. there's a lot of good in the way I was raised that I'm so grateful for, because if I hadn't learned those things, the culture here, the Canadian culture would not have taught that to me yes. because the culture here is, you know, that colonist mentality, me, 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 me. And so there's that balance of like, what is the good from our culture that we can take away? And then what is the stuff that we're like, eh, I want to change this. And that's the hard part I find is it's, it wasn't modeled in any way, right? Like there's no perfect model that we can go off of. We're literally creating the path for ourselves. 
Yes. And that is like, I often tell clients, I'm like, don't bushwhack alone. Like that, that Mm. is what I do. Like for most of the time, like there isn't a path. Um, And so much of what we're doing is you're exactly like hundred percent. Like there are some things that are so lovely, like all the duty to family stuff. Sometimes it sucks, but like, sometimes it's wonderful. Absolutely. Um, You know, and like the connection and, you know, just the, just all of the family stuff is really lovely. Yeah. And um, how do we how do we reflect on what we were raised with and take the pieces and really look at it? And it's like you got a big old like messy ass purse and you have to like dump it all out on the table and be like, okay, what do we have here? What do I want to hold on to? What is this? I love thing? that analogy. <laughs> but it is. It's like yeah. it is like it's a stuff we carry with us, right? Yes. And like yes, and just and it's like so many dimensions of like from like, what do we do with food? Cause I don't know. I keep talking about food and I swear it's not just cause I'm basic, but we eat all day long. Like we do. Yeah. You have to interact with food. Yeah. Um, there are like various triggers. I always say like parenting is, is really triggering. Right. It and is. Like, yeah. Right. Like, it, like all like the hornet's nest that's like kind of over here, like yeah. it gets kind of and everything comes out. And if anybody has issues with food, like it's going to happen. Cause we get to feed the kids all the time. Yeah. And you know, these are things you can't anticipate until you have kids. I had no idea when I was pregnant that I would even, it's like this whole bag was sealed shut and suddenly like the zipper starts like, you know, using that personality, it starts opening and you're like, all this stuff starts coming up. And you're like, I didn't know that I was even upset about this. I didn't even know I had trauma from this situation because nothing's triggering it until it does until your children are screaming or until something about how they respond reminds you of yourself. And for me, it's been like, oh, when I reacted like that, I had no compassion. I was given no compassion. And now I have to respond with compassion so that my child doesn't grow up feeling the same way I did. 100%. My big feelings, right? Right, right. And like when they hold up the mirror and you're like, Oh. oh, shit. Yeah. And like, you're tired and you just pushed out a baby or like you yeah. had major abdominal surgery. Or, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like the thing that I think is so important to remember when we do this parenting thing is that not only are we realizing like, oh, when I had this behavior or this reaction, I was not met with the compassion that I'm trying to give my child. So not only are you learning how to do the thing and the way it was never done for you, but you're also like grieving and mourning a loss of what you should have had. and didn't. Yes. Which is sad because you feel like, wow, what, like, what did I miss? How much did I miss? Because I didn't receive what I needed. And it's, it's both. You're so right. It's like this process of like grieving and healing and knowing that, you know, we're doing better for our kids and hopefully moving that that cycle forward and breaking some of those patterns that we grew up with. Right. Um, but yeah, wow. I I have friends who are, don't have kids and they're like, shouldn't we have kids? Should we, should we not? And I'm like, listen, it is a big responsibility and you have to do what's best for you, but it is hard. It is triggering, but it also brings so much healing and joy in a way that you cannot, in a way that I don't think I would have had if I wasn't a parent. Do you know what I mean? A hundred percent. It's like every time and I say this all the time. I'm like, every time we talk about the hard things and we dump the purse out and like sort through everything and, you know, like, oh, this is really triggering. How do I want to parent differently? Oh, I never yeah. got this. Let me look at this and like process this loss. That is intergenerational healing. Yes. 
that's what that is. And sometimes it happens in like mundane things where the child's like, I don't like this food. And like, I hate bandy. Like I cannot eat it. Like I, and some people are like, I love it. I'm like, no, I never give it to me again. And like, I know I have, as an adult, I learned I have oral sensory issues because uh. one of my kids has it. And I learned, he was like, and he could finally say like, this food is really slimy and slimy. Like, I don't like it. And I was like, and if you can say that child, like, okay, yeah, so it's fine. Food yeah. feels weird in our mouths. Like it's important you eat vegetables. How would you like your vegetables cooked? Yeah. He likes like broccoli, like vegetables, like roasted, like salt and pepper, like garlic powder, like chili yeah. powder. But not the like slimy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fair. And I think that we, it's the same thing when I was a kid, I was always thin and small. So I was always told eat more, eat more. And I'm like, I'm done. Like I want to respect my body, but like, I didn't have that language, but you're being forced to eat more. So I started hating food. I started resenting food because when we moved to Canada, the principal said, I'm really small. So he's like, I, I was ahead of grade in India. So he's like, she should stay in her age grade here. So I had to repeat grade five because I was really small. Apparently I was still small in grade six. Trust me. I didn't, I didn't grow that much. I'm just, I was just short, you know? And, but I had in, internalized this message that my body's a problem, which means I need to eat more. But then the food here, I hated because I'm, I'm used to eating delicious Indian food. And then that was made fun of when I went to school. So now I'm eating cheese sandwiches, which is like so boring. And I'm vegetarian. So there's like, minimal options for sandwiches. And then I started hating food. And so now that I have kids, it's so easy for me. I don't care if they're picky because I remember that trauma and I'm like, you, you, it's, it's all good. I have no stress about food, which I know a lot of parents have because of, you know, maybe they didn't have the same experience that I did, but I remember feeling like, fine. I just hate food because I'm being forced all the time to eat it. Oh, Oh yeah. It's awful. awful. And I don't think parents realize that when they're forcing their kids, that could happen, you know? And it it wasn't even like eating disorder. Like I want to be thin. It was just like, I don't want food because it's always a problem. It's always, you know, relating back to my body being a problem somehow. And, um, it's hard. It's hard now as a parent, because that, that, that stuff, you know, I share because I've learned a lesson from how I was parented. And I'm like, I know not to do that to my kids. Right. Right. But then some things you just react in the same way, like my dad reacted. And I'm like, oh, I really did not want to do that. But right. how do I learn the behaviors to not do it? And so tell me about your work because you work, you counsel um, your clients one-on-one. Yeah. What are some strategies people need to work on um, to help them change those patterns and even be self-aware enough to actually recognize what, what they, how they feel and what they need? It's such a good question. And I, I often, um, I remind everybody that it's skills, it's, it's work, it's unlearning and relearning. Right. And like, you would never tell anybody who'd never run before. Okay. Go run a marathon. Like right. first you do, you're like, I'm going to run for 30 seconds and walk for a minute. I'm going to do yes. that for 10 minutes. I'm going to do that three times a week. And you build it up. So it's, t- it's like itty bitty muscle. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Right. We're learning. It's not like you flip a switch and like, well, I'm going to do it a whole different way. No, you're like, 30, whatever years old, you've been doing shit for like a certain way. It's going to take a minute. But what I think is really powerful is like being able to cultivate this, this awareness to be able to tune into what is happening. Like that example, right? Like if you, with food, if you react a certain way and it just kind of something happens to our brains and bodies and someone like pushes the button and it's like a trigger wire, it gets tripped, whoop, something comes out. Like you react in a certain way. 
if we can practice being able to observe that and being like, oh, that thing happened, shoot, okay. And to really practice like when your child does a certain thing or says a certain thing, or even yesterday, this example of the kid being like, mom, I'm like, fuck, distressed, fuck, I'm getting distressed and so activated. Mm. I was like, whoa, 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 oh, I'm getting activated. Mm. I notice my distress and we often externalize the thing like, ooh, distress is showing up. Oh, anxiety is really loud. Like, it's not like, oh, I'm so anxious. I'm so anxious, but it's happening to me. Like yes. anxiety is appearing. Yeah. Oh, that like low mood is like really dragging me down today. Like name it as an external thing and observe it with like that, like reaction. Like it's not going to last a long time. If you can like hold on and be like, whoa, whoa, I see that reactivity that's like really loud and it's vibrating in my body. What am I going to do to just take a breath, take a beat, observe it, notice it. I'm not going to react from that place. Like the reaction's okay. We're not going to judge it. It's here it's showing up for a reason. Yeah. Fine. And hold on a second, take some breaths and be like, oh, oh hold on a second. We're not going to react from that place of distress. Let's wait a minute. And like, we're okay. What do we want to do? Okay. Yeah. I see you're really frustrated. That sucks, man. What can I do to help? And it's like the slow training of like, yeah, I see that happening and I'm not going to respond from that place. And if you do, if you do get mad or you do like, you should be thankful for your food, whatever, whatever thing you say, the most wonderful thing about parenting is that it's an ongoing thing and it's <laughs> based on rupture and repair, right? If you mess it up or you don't do it right, guess what? You're a human and not a fucking robot. So <laughs> like, hey, you know what? The thing that I said the other day or at lunchtime or whatever, like, you know, I reacted kind of badly and I want to try that again. Or like, just, you can say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have spoken that way to you. Or my reaction was wrong. I'm going to try to do it differently. Name the thing for the kids. because that was Yes. And guess what? I've started doing that. And my kid, my older one will call it out now. She's like, you need to apologize because you yelled. And I'm like, yes, yes, you're right. And it's really lovely because she recognizes that she doesn't deserve to be yelled at. And we obviously we tell her that we don't want to yell, but sometimes it does happen. And then you're like, you feel awful about it, but that repair never, literally never happened in my entire life for my parents. Nope. So the fact that I can do that for my kids, that we can, you know, do that for our kids, I think is beautiful. And it also teaches them that like what kind of behavior they deserve right? From their friends, from their teachers, from, from their peers. Um, because we learned internalized that if, you know, if people of authority yell at us, that we deserve to be yelled at, right? That we are that bad. We, or we that we're bad. Wrong. Right. Exactly. Right. And the other piece of that, that I think, and we talk about this so much with clients is that like, so much of it is like, just like bits of psycho ed, right. Of like, this is what attachment is. And like mm. that, this is part of the co-regulation of like, Hey, I'm sorry. And that like, whatever, like stuff the kid's holding, they can let go of it. Or like, yeah. you're like, give me those hard feelings. I, don't hold them alone. Like that yeah. wasn't your fault. I lost my temper. Yeah. And you're showing them how to have feelings. They're learning that their mom sometimes gets mad, sometimes yells and then apologizes. Yes. And that she loves them no matter what. And she makes mistakes and she's going to keep trying. Yes. And I think that's, it sounds easy, but it's actually such hard work. And it's for anybody who's like started their journey in therapy or has not even considered it. Like 
for me, therapy has been so important because without that, I don't think I would have the tools like you described to run a marathon, right? Yeah, yeah. So the building blocks, because this literally was not taught to us ever. Never modeled. It's a marathon. It is. And it is, it's an ultra marathon. So, you know, you have to learn those skills. And I think that's what your work, what you help people develop is those skills to unlearn and then examine themselves. How do they feel? And then respond from a place of, um, you know, calm instead of like reacting all the time, which I can now see in other parents when they're dysregulated or, yeah. you know, elevated. And the fact that I can actually recognize that now is, is huge. Cause before I was so, uh, like blind to all those feelings, I would not even be able to pinpoint it. Right. 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 And so yes. tell me, so we've talked about, you know, how race and culture impact, um, parenting and the triggering that can happen. Can you talk about your kids are older? So they're kind of preteen, preteens or teens? They're teens. They're yeah. teens. Oh my gosh. I know it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. And so you've kind of been through the infant toddler phase, the preschool kind of elementary. Can you share some of the, the themes, I guess, in parenting, like the, the common struggles that come up when you're parenting kids? For me, I'm thinking right off the bat, like handling their big emotions is one, right? And um, yeah, what are some other, like, I wouldn't know. I don't have older kids. So I, I have no idea what's it, what's in store for me. <laughs> it's, it's like, well, I mean, it's so much of it is like handling your own shit and like handling your own triggers. Like when they hold up the mirror, like when, you know, when your kids gets teased in middle school, how do you mm. respond to that child that is not like, you know, that's not just a manifestation of your own trauma. Like so much of it is like managing, like the activation of our own trauma and our own triggers. Like that's like 99% of like. <laughs> but it's like handling the big emotions, which toddlers, it's like a great preview for teens because it's the same thing. Like, like small person, like huge emotions like that. And like teens, it's like a whole, like the moods and the stuff. I'm like, woo. And I come back to the same thing that we, we see as a toddler. It's like when the two-year-old is mad and hitting you, you're like, oh, you can be mad. That's okay. You can't hit me. I will not let you hit. You know, you can like, oh, you can throw the ball, but you can't throw it in the house. Like you validate the feelings, you correct the behavior. Right. Like, same thing with teens. I'm like, you can feel whatever way you want, but you cannot be an asshole. Like that is yeah. not okay. <laughs> You cannot weaponize your shit onto me and your sibling like that. If you're in a bad mood, tell us you're in a bad mood. Tell us you need space. That's fine. It's it, it's so much of the like, and remembering that when kids behave in a certain way, they have an unmet need. Yes, <laughs> they're humans, just like us. Like I'm nasty and cranky when I am hungry. When I hungry, I was just yeah, hungry, sleepy, yeah, yeah. overstimulated. Like when I yes. don't have a break. Um, yes. And so, so much of it is interpreting, you know, like, you know, noticing that you're doing X and Y, that's okay. Is, do you have a need? Do you need a break? Do you need a snack? And they're like, I'm fine. I'm like, well, if you're fine, then you need to be fine. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. Need, I'm like, don't, uh, I will not do this. The words and tone and body have to match. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well then you need to change your behavior. If you're not fine, then we can fix, we can deal with it. Deal with the need. Yeah. So much of it is interpreting like the emotions, dealing with the emotions, our own distress tolerance, being able to co-regulate, manage our own trauma, 
And the other thing that I think is huge, a big challenge of parenting, like from throughout the stages is being able to understand when to let your child lead and when to kind of give them a little nudge. Yeah. Um, that I think is such a challenge of parenting. Like when is the, when are you going to wean the baby? When is the baby going to learn to use the toilet? When is yeah. the baby going to separate in a certain way? You know, when are you going to be like, I know that you don't want to do this activity, but like, you can't just stay home all summer and like lie around like a sloth on your phone. Like you're going to have to do something. Mm. Which one do you want to do this, this, or this? Yeah. Um, and I, I, again, to bring it back to race and culture, I think, um, you know, for many of us, we were just never given choices. It was like, you will do this now. Yeah. Um, it's like, and- we've, yeah, it's like, it's one of, one of two things. Like the way I have in my experience, it's like, you're either babied when you're old, like even when you're a teenager and you're like, I'm already in university, you're like treated like a child, like a baby, right? Child, like you can't do anything on your own. You know, you need your parents to do everything for you. Or it's, you're being told this is what you're doing now. Yes. And so you're like, I don't get choice and I don't get trust. I feel like nobody trusts me to do these things. And you can be the smartest kid in the school, all rounder, like, you know, Daisy kids are trying to prove themselves all the time, trying to earn the parents' pride. But the reality is, you know, what I'm recognizing is my parents don't have the skills themselves to recognize those things because they weren't taught and they didn't have the practice and they didn't have the support and the mental health support and the training and this, and the tools. So I'm expecting things from them that they just cannot offer. And so as a parent, now I get to choose those things from, you know, my kids as, as I raise them. Right. And then, then there's the bushwhacking of like, okay, how do I do this? How do I figure this out? Like, yeah, I was raised with this thing, but this just isn't working for me and my kid, but what are these other models? And, you know, I live in this very like precious snowflake kind of neighborhood where everybody's like crunchy and earthy and we just let the children lead because they're magical. I'm like, I got to go to work, step on the gap. You know, I'm like, <laughs> sometimes there's to find. You have, you need that balance. Cause you can't just be like, all right, we're just, yeah. Cause I feel like kids also need to know that they have an adult who they can trust and they're not like trying to lead the way and they're like three, right? No, you need boundaries and structure and no, like there's, there's definitely like, I definitely see people. I'm like, oh no, like you need to tell them no, like it's okay. And they're like, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I'm like, no, no, no. That's part of parenting. You can tell them no. And like, again, like they might not like it and it might not feel good for you. And, and this is like the both and parenting yes. is so much both and, right? Yeah. Like, and it can be hard and also right. And like, oh yeah, our parents, they did the best they could. We can be grateful for all of they what they did and also be sad at what we didn't get. Like that is a lot of what we do in therapy, holding the both and. Both, both truths and understanding to kind of accept where we are now, right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's so interesting because for me, that's been a lot of my journey over the past five years. And it's, I will say for anyone listening, like it makes a difference because I am a totally different parent than I was a year ago. Yeah. And I know that each year that passes, hopefully knock on wood, I will be a better parent, know my kids better, know myself better. Mm-hmm. And there's like that wisdom that comes as you get older too. You start recognizing like anyways, it's easier to recognize what matters, what yeah. is a priority and what is just like, this is not important. No, no point stressing about it. Like a clean home. I would love to have that every day, but this is 
not realistic for the point of parenting we're at. And we have a toddler who literally will take things apart the second we put it back together. So we just have to recognize that this is where it is. That's why I'm laughing when you said this is a preview of teenagers. And I'm just like, whoo, this kid as a teen, I'm, I'm excited for that because it'll be interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, and it's amazing to watch them become themselves, right? And that's, that's a beautiful thing to sort of like, open the door and be like, yes, you can, you're interested in this thing. Great. Go do it. Um, go, go be who you are. Um, and that, like, I think, um, you know, my husband is, is really, really good at like a good counterweight. I think that's been really helpful for me in my parenting journey. And I often say this, you know, many of my clients are newly postpartum and often they complain about their partner and be like, Oh, my partner doesn't do it right. And they're not doing it right. And I'm kind of like, they're doing it differently. It's not necessarily wrong. Right it's or wrong, for yeah. kids to have different models of yes. how to approach different situations, how to problem solve. There's no right, one right way to do things. It's true. And I feel like we have to recognize that we each, like I have many weaknesses, but I also have many strengths and like build off your strengths and teach your kids from that. Right. And um, yeah, I, I see that. Or people are trying to figure it all out when their babies are like six months. I'm like, this is just the beginning. Like, give yourself time. I like, I think you're always going to be figuring it out. I talked to my mom, right? Like, obviously her kids are like grownups and she's still saying, I still learn stuff all the time, you know? And because now she's able to, now she's like done her parenting journey in the sense that like we're grown up and out of her house right. and whatnot. We're so launched. she can, she can now reflect back and she has that ability now because she's not, working two jobs and like exhausted and, you know, in the thick of it, she can now reflect back and say, oh yeah, I wish I did do things differently at this time, which is really healing for me because we were able to have this type of adult conversation. And I can't do that with my dad. And I recognize that people have their different um, capacities to handle these types of conversations. So it's really wild when we're right in the thick of it. Yes. And so I want to talk about, um, we, we talked about some of the cultural narratives and can you talk about, um, there's something, oh yes. You talked about your mom's food, how people used to make fun of your mom's food and how <laughs> your house smelled. And I am like, yep. I was so embarrassed. I would not invite friends over. And everyone's yeah. like, I've heard Indian food's great. And I'm like, I'm too embarrassed to have you over. Cause you're going to make fun of my food smell. Cause you'd make fun of my clothes, make fun of all this stuff. So I learned very early on when I moved here to be embarrassed about my culture. Oh yeah. And you grew up here or, you know, in the U.S. So how was that? Oh, God. Yeah, it, it's so wild. <laughs> the punchline of the story is that my very white husband, like, makes more Indian food than I do and makes dosa from scratch. And, like, not the same like, as my husband. Same. Literally, totally. he's a better Indian than I am. <laughs> totally. And, and, like, my parents still say that. Um, but, you know, my dad will be like, he's Indian. You're not really Indian. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and of course, my husband will eat pandy and eat bigan and eat all the things. I'm like, I don't like that. And my husband's like, I'll eat anything. I'm like, give me a char, give me everything, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but no, when I was growing, I grew up in, in Connecticut and I did have friends who would come over and like nearly all of them would say, eh, eh, what is this smell? You know? And, um, you know, my mom was obsessed with uh, closing, closing up the kitchen. Like it would be almost like hermetically sealed with like all of the fans. And she, whenever we would come in and out, she'd be like, close the door, close the door, we're cooking. You can't have the house smell. Mm. Uh, my mother was a doctor and she was like, you, I cannot go to the hospital smelling like food because people will look at you. I can't smell like this food. Um, and it was so everyone, ew, ew, ew. And I was always allowed to have 
Stouffer's frozen French bread pizzas or craft mac and cheese in the blue box when my friends came over and that when, when I would have a sleepover. So we would sit at the table and my parents would eat with their hands. They'd be like, you know, I hope it's okay that we eat with our hands. And, you know, like, ex excuse me, like, I'm sorry if you think this is gross. This is how we eat. And we would get our French bread pizza or we would get our craft mac and cheese. And um, I remember when I was in high school, I had a friend, I went to boarding school actually. So I wasn't home all the time. And I had a friend come and visit me over a vacation. And um, I remember we were same deal sitting at the kitchen table and my mom had some dal and she had sambar and she had some mm, chicken delicious. curry. We grew up yeah. eating, yeah. And, um, and my friend, like it, when I was a kid, it was like, ew, what is that? And like, then this high school friend was like, what, what is that? And my mom was like, this is dal. <laughs> Her eyes <laughs> light up. <laughs> with spinach. Would you like some? It's very nice if you put some yogurt on it. Come get the yogurt, give it to them. You know, and they were like, oh, it's really good. And she, and she just, and like from there on, it was a completely different experience. And, you know, I'd have college friends come over. Somebody's like high in the middle of the night. They're like opening the kitchen. They're eating the Indian food cold from the Corningware dish. <laughs> and my mother would be like, you have to heat it up. You can't eat it cold. And they'd be like, this is really good. And, and it's just amazing how now everyone's like, oh, golden milk. And I'm like, it's like this stuff that is so, you know, we always had like ghee in the little, um, that little stainless, like stainless steel stainless. jar thing or, thing you know, with thing with the lid and the spoon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I can't describe it. I can see it in my mind, like exactly yeah. how it was. And just like the things that we grew up with that people thought were disgusting. Now, you know, that it's, it's cool. All, it's trendy. Yeah. It's expensive and, and it's, you know, it's really, and then like bone broth. And I'm like, yeah, my mom used to go and like get like beef bones from the butcher when somebody was sick and she would make broth in the bones. Cause she was like, there's bone marrow nutrients in here. It's really good for you. And everyone's like, oh yes, I'm having my bone broth and my golden milk. And I'm like, and it's just frustrating. I'm like, great. That's fine. And, and, you know, sometimes I'll complain about it. And sometimes the older generation is like, oh, look at this everybody's doing yoga. It's so good. I'm like, yeah, all right, fine. Um, but like if, and, and they're like, oh, look at our culture. It's becoming more mainstream. People are appreciating it. And yes, I get that. That's lovely. And also, <laughs> it's just, like, we're being erased from it. Right. So when people drink turmeric milk, they don't even recognize that it's Indian. Right. So I yes. remember I was at my old work when I worked in a clinic and I was sick or like getting over a cold. And my boss was like, oh, you should go down to the aroma. They have a turmeric, um, latte that's really good for you I, you know it's a turmeric has I'm like little, 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 excuse me you, you do not have to tell me about the benefits of and you know of course of course they say turmeric like it's a tumor I'm like there's an r it's turmeric like even that used to piss me off and it's like it's great that they're doing yoga it's great that they're drinking you know doing the ayurvedic benefits of all the foods and everything but we are being erased from those those things and that's the problem that's right? the problem when some white lady's telling me how to pronounce something some in some asana and I'm like, just, I can't, can't be here. I can't, I can't be there. No, I, I cannot, cannot do yoga with white people anymore ever again. Yeah. Yes. This is going to go on the internet. Somebody's going to say some nasty shit to me, but I'm just so done. Because no, I had somebody actually on talking about who she teaches yoga and she's, um, of Indian background from the States. And she said the same thing is, you know, white women don't understand how harmful it is. 
when they teach yoga, because they're so unaware of the harm that they're causing. Right. And I always say if, to my white friends, I'm like, you can learn, you can practice, but why are you teaching? You do not have the skills to teach even after taking a 200, 300 hour course. This takes years of being steeped in the culture to learn. You know, I always give the example of like, you can bounce a basketball, but that doesn't mean you're playing basketball, right? It's, no. it's, it's like, you're, you're practicing a part of it. And I feel like that story of, you know, in high school, your friends started to be interested in your food. That happened to me probably in university. Mm. In high school, I still was kind of like, mm, not having friends over yeah. and stuff. But then suddenly Indian food was cool. And my white friends would be like, Serbi, how come you never, you know, t- invited us to your place? And I'm like, how come you never asked also, right? Yeah. You never... You knew you had an Indian friend, but you didn't care to try Indian food, right? It's, it goes both ways. And to anybody who's listening, who's still in that, I, cause a lot of my followers are in that journey as well, where they're rediscovering their culture. Yes. And there's nothing as healing as just eating your food openly, eating with your hands, if that's what you want to do. And just like teaching our kids that that's normal. Right. How you break a piece of the roti off. You like, you don't make the burrito. You like break the piece oh my gosh. of the scoop. Yeah, And, you know, and like, yes, you have to put your dahi in like with your food a little bit. And like, you have to, it's just, there is absolutely healing to like, imagine like breaking the piece of the chapati and, and ooh, just stuck myself in the face and like doing this and like eating your food, you know, that's like, that's home. Right. And and my, my kids do it, right. They've learned yeah. it and they do it. And it's just like, so beautiful to see. And and I think that's, that's the, all the magic of our culture that I think when we're that we forget that I forgot about because I was so focused on all the bad things about my culture that I hated learning from my parents, like the, the yelling, as soon as I do something, you know, make a mistake, the perfectionism. And a lot of that pressure from them is just because, you know, that's also that colonial mindset. You have to perform other to stand out, to get your opportunities otherwise, right? If you don't do well in school, then, then what there's, they come from a highly competitive country because there's so many people and they have to compete for a few spots at this university or this college or this school or this job. So as I'm getting older, I really empathize with them more. And absolutely, it's that both end. I empathize with them and I'm like, but I wish I didn't have that. You know, I grieve the, grieve the younger version of me that didn't have that empathy myself. So I love, I love that you're talking about all this. Um, and I, I had to laugh because, so for those of you listening, I had Divya fill out this little form, you know, just her bio and her, you know, thing. And she, she talked about how people buy artisanal ghee for $20. And I literally died laughing because it's true. They, yeah. And we just had it in like a big thing. And we, this is like back in, you know, I, I'm 46. Uh, and so back in the eighties, there wasn't a Patel brothers in the town where I grew up in. And we used to buy the Indian groceries in Jackson Heights in Queens. We used to go to the Ganesh temple, go mm. to Dosa hut, you know, with two T's next door. And then we'd go to the Indian stores in Jackson Heights. And so we'd have the big thing of ghee and you'd have that, like, it was a big thing when the store started selling, um, how do you say it in English? Cilantro. Like, but now I'm like in with you. And I'm like, thinking, oh, not the English words. Um, and my mother was like, oh, Pathmark is selling Guthamir. And I was like, okay. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but it was such a big deal um, yes. to us then. And now it's just sort of everywhere. Commonplace. Yeah. When you live in a city, especially, right? You just don't even think twice. And no. I always like to remind people, like for me, f- food is important. And like the history of the food, even, right. even non-Indian food, right? I want to understand where this food is from and what, you right. know, and 
I think that connects you to the people too and gives you better understanding of them. And I really think that like the amount of patience my mom has to cook those meals, because you know, yeah. Indian food takes time to cook. It's not, it's not a quick thing. That's, I, I, I am with, not a good cook. <laughs> I grew up like, you know, having to chop the vegetables and like cut the beans and, um, you know, and, and my mom died nearly exactly two years ago. And so, so much of, of, and like the, the piece of raising multiracial kids too, is that like, when people die, stuff dies, it's gone, you know? Yes. And I do like, I, I definitely, like, and my mother used to always say like, you better learn how to do this. So because one day I'm going to be dead and gone and who's going to do this. And now I'm like, uh, you're um, like, she was right. Damn it. The lady was right about so many things, but like, you know, and she has this like book where she wrote all the recipes. It's like cut onions. And I'd be like, how many onions? She's like, you need to know how many onions we put onions. Um, but it's all, she was always like, it's labor intensive to cut. You have to watch. You can't just put it in the oven and walk away. And it's, it's, it's true. Yeah, it is true. And that's something that, um, I told myself, I'm like, I'm going to learn like one of her recipes every month. Yeah. <laughs> as I, as I say that, I'm like, I need to start because, <laughs> because you're right. Not uh, she writes down her recipes for me too, but it's, it's never right. Like she's like one teaspoon. I'm like, what do you mean by teaspoon? Cause I'm taking out the measuring device. And for her, it's the spoon that she has. <laughs> right. My mother's so- was green and stained with healthy, of course, <laughs> as was everything, as was everything. <laughs> Um, okay. So tell me, I have a few questions for you. Yes. Tell me about, um, a book podcast that you love listening to that you read that has changed your perspective or that you love the book. I think my first experience with the, like, Holy shit, my mind was blown by a book was actually reading the namesake a million years ago. I read that on my honeymoon in 2004 and it was, it really, it was, it really spoke to my experience as a child of immigrants in relationships with white people and navigating the two worlds of like, not knowing that you don't put cheese on fish or not knowing like the certain Mm -hmm. ways that white people do things or Americans do things and how like my family was just always going to operate differently. And if somebody gave my parents like a jar of random jams, they would definitely sit in the corner of the pantry forever and nobody would ever use them. Um, that book I found to be just it. for the first time, somebody kind of mirrored my experience. Your stories. Yeah. And you should read Cal Penn's autobiography because he talks about when he read that book um, mm. and how he was like, oh my gosh, if this is a movie, like I really want to be in this movie. And it, it's, it's really cool reading his um, perception his, of that story. Um, yeah. I recommend. Oh, I haven't read either. So I will put those on my list. Um, Amazing. And do you listen to podcasts? I I often joke that um, I am a podcast, a moderately podcast illiterate person. And I listen to the podcasts that my clients send me because often they're like, I'm listening to this podcast. You have to listen to it. I'm like, okay. Um, I I recently, a client sent me uh, the link to truth be told a bunch of episodes about using psychedelics, like microdosing of psychedelics to heal racial trauma. Um, so I've heard I, of this more. Yes. I was riveted. And I had mentioned to you earlier, I recently had COVID and I was like, slowly starting to like take walks again. And I was listening to these podcasts and I was like, wow, this is really interesting. Just black people growing up, just experiencing terrible racial trauma and all sorts of trauma. And just, yeah really holding it in their bodies, like just yes. holding it, holding an intergenerational it. trauma that just is lives in your body. Yeah. Hands down. And then like being able to like cry and release through the use of psychedelics. And it was really interesting. And I would like to learn more. I would like to learn more about that too. I've just recently he- heard about it. I 
I was listening to Gabor Mate's podcast uh-huh. um, about his new book, The Myth of Normal. And he was talking about he has this. Um, th- and one of my friends was like, I want to go on this. He has a retreat where it's yes. like therapy and microdosing and like this, this experience essentially that is like, yeah, I was like, that sounds interesting. But I feel yeah. like there'd be more, more news about that in the future. Tell me about three things you do for yourself every day for whether you call it self-care or just for yourself. Um, What are some small habits that you, you partake in? This is such a good question. One of them is that I need to move my body. I have to move my body. Speaking of all the regulation, like girlfriend has to move. So I do something every day, whether it's some sort of walking or cardio, or I love strength training. Cause I'm like, yes. amazing. Yes. Pick things up and put them down. I like lifting heavy things. Um, so that is one thing. Another thing is that I am lucky enough that I often have this little chunk of time. Sometimes it's 15 minutes. Sometimes it's longer between when the children leave the house and when I have to start working. Yes. Um, and so I will sit and have my coffee then. And I have really pretty coffee mugs that I've bought at local craft fairs. I'm a stereotype of myself. That's totally cool. Fine. But there's these beautiful ceramic coffee mugs and I sit and I have this delicious coffee that I make at home and it's like this wonderful treat. And I give myself life every day again in this coffee mug. Well, and it's also that transition, right? Like instead of going kids work, like go, go, go. You're giving yourself that pause to like reorient round yourself. And I love that. You know what? That's I'm going to steal that idea. I don't drink coffee that much, but like I do chai or even just like having a hot beverage of any kind. I think that's a beautiful way to start the day. And And 15 minutes is doable. It's not like, oh, you need three hours, right? No, 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 no. You need a pause. Yeah. Something is, and even with exercise, right? Like, and you know, this as like, as a therapist, like something is better than nothing. Like you can walk for 10 minutes. Great. That's uh, That's enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the third thing is, I love spelling bee, the New York Times spelling bee game. It makes me very happy. And often I sit with my coffee and I do spelling bee. It is so much better than Wordle. Um, <laughs> nerds out there, spelling bee better than Wordle. I don't, I don't know what spelling bee is. Um, oh, okay. It is um, in the New York Times, there's a game section with a crossword and whatever. And it's a game where every day they give you seven letters, um, including, and, and you have to make words out of these seven letters and you have to use the one letter that's in the middle of this sort of like, it looks like a honeycomb kind of thing. Okay. Like, like gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and so you try to make as many words as possible. And it's this like meditative thing that I can come back to in between clients. Or if I'm like, you know, waiting, like cooking dinner, I'll like have the computer open and you try to find the pangram, which is the word that uses all the letters. And it just, just makes me happy. And it's also good for your brain. Right? Yes. And paired with coffee, it's a nice way to start the day. <laughs> um, amazing. Okay. So tell me something that you are really passionate about right now. Um, I like this whole time I've been talking about stuff that I'm just like, oh, I'm so jazzed about all this. Something that, um, so right now I'm actually reading the book, The Trauma of Cast. I don't know if you've heard of, uh, heard I've of heard it. of the book, but I haven't read it. I highly recommend this book and it has really opened my eyes to cast apartheid and Dalit rights um, and, you know, doing what we can to dismantle caste, to abolish it. The woman who writes the book, she's a, a Dalit feminist activist, Thenmuri Sundararajan, I believe is her last name. And it is absolutely profound and, and just 
mind and sort of body opening. And I, if anybody is listening to this, please go read this book um, because she does such a beautiful job linking ballot rights to the Black Lives Matter movement, to the Me Too feminist movement, and just connecting uh, disenfranchised, marginalized folks um, yeah. from different Because there's so many common threads and it's yep. the same systems, right? The same systems are causing these, these traumas and victim, like basically, um, even, even for myself growing up in India, there's so much we didn't learn, right? We yes. learned about a bunch of world history, but then conveniently we didn't learn about how we also are part of the oppressive system when it comes right. to caste or when and it it's comes still to happening. It's, it's still not happening. just something that happened a long time ago. Yeah. I was raised as like, caste is stupid. Like, why do people care about Same. Well, I didn't, I didn't know caste still existed. And then right. I'm finding out what? Right. But we're, we're sheltered from the truth. And that reminds me of how sometimes white people have no idea that racism exists because they, I don't, they're sheltered. Color. Yeah. Cause yeah. they don't, they're not, they don't think they're part of the problem. And it's the same with cast, right? So we're all, we can all do something about it. So I love that. Thank you for recommending that book. Absolutely. Um, tell me if you could change one thing about the world, what would you change? Violence. Uh, I mean, I, I there, there's just so much violence. Uh, look at all, we're all this product of intergenerational trauma. When, when I read that question, when you sent it to me ahead of time, I'm like, I mean, also literally the earth is fucking burning, but really to me, it's violence, uh, violence against each other, against the planet, against, against ourselves. Can we please get rid of it? Yeah, I, that's, I would, I 100% agree. Um, and then what would you say is your biggest mom strength? I love this question. I am just very authentically myself and I try to be honest, yeah. um, with clients, with my children, with people in my life. I'm like, can we just say the hard things and talk about what's really going on? Because I think when we do that, we break down stigma. We let go of shame. Like shame exists because shit lies in silence, like in our bodies. And if we can just be like, Hey, this is something that's hard for me. Can we talk about it? That's how we heal. So I think that I am able to talk about things and I want to talk about the hard things and I want to hear and uh, create relationships that, that are based on authentic authenticity and honesty. Uh, I think. That's, yeah. That's Having, and I value that too, because it's, like the deep, authentic, honest conversations are what bring people closer, right? And help you see the other person versus like the superficial stuff. I love it. And tell me about how people can connect with you online or, you know, whatever, whatever way is best to connect with you and what services you offer. Oh, that's a good question. So I, I primarily use Instagram for connecting with people. I am at both Brown and Therapist. Cause you know, all in both and, um, and oh, I love it. Yeah, I just got it. it. I just got it. There? <laughs> see what I did there. Yeah. Um, and what I'm, uh, so I am a psychotherapist licensed in the state of Massachusetts. I do individual therapy. Um, so if you are somebody who lives in Massachusetts, I can see you for ind individual therapy. And the other thing that like is, and I've, I've also run, um, perinatal support groups for folks of color. I love running those spaces. I'm hopefully going to run one in the fall. And the other thing that's like coming down the pipes, coming down the pipes for me is I'm working on this workbook with all the stuff that I've kind of talked about here. Like, how do we dump out the purse? It's basically like a guidebook of how do you dump out the purse and like sort, sort through your shit. I so love that. that. And I really of... uh, thank you for sharing that analogy. I think it's a very, I'm a very visual person. So I'm, now I'm like, I'm just going to picture that purse and be like, oh, just dumped it out. And now I have to pick what to put back in, what to discard. And I love it. 
I love it. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Divya, for sharing your experience, your energy and your time and your authenticity with me and whoever's listening. Thank you for listening. I think that mental health is something that I wish was support was given for everyone in the world, because I think that that's how people can heal um, is by better understanding themselves and giving themselves compassion and then extending that same compassion to everyone else. So thank you for doing the work that you do. I will, I will recommend all of my, um, audience and clients and people to go follow you, to connect with you. If you live in Massachusetts, um, I don't know if I mispronounced that. I feel like, I, <laughs> how do you, no, act- you're good. Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, go connect with, uh, Divya there if you live there, cause that would be amazing. And I will be eagerly waiting your workbook. It's coming. Got to work on it. Yeah. I, I just things yeah. take more time, right? You think, you think it's going to be quick and it also just takes time to develop these things. So that's all right. Yeah. It's, it's okay. It will happen when it happens. So thank you everyone for listening and thank you Divya for your time. And until next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Mom Strength and being part of this important conversation. Check out the show notes for more info and links and we'll chat again real soon.